And while I'm getting set up here, if you want to open up your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 11, you can do that now. Always good to hear Rich's voice. Just neat. It just feels like he's, you know, here right with us. And we look forward to that time when he is and and Christy and the whole Ablett family. We just miss him so bad. But uh, I'm just so excited for them. Can't wait to perhaps join them someday. They're talking about going over there and kind of blazing the trail for us in Israel and like doing all the tours and all the areas and locations. That way we when we go as a church someday, uh, which I definitely want to be in on that, uh, we can all go over and enjoy it with them. So how cool would that be, right? So what a blessing. All right, well, Hebrews chapter 11, before we get into it, why don't we go ahead and pray once more, Father? Again, Lord, we just ask your blessing upon this time. And uh, Lord, would you just um, meet us right here, Father? Holy Spirit, just move in a mighty way uh, in our hearts today, Lord God. And uh, Father, as we've just uh, taken time to calm ourselves, Lord, from the busy week and and uh, everything that's gone on, Lord, we've, uh, we've lifted up worship to you. And Lord, we've celebrated communion. And, and now as we look into the, the word, Lord, your word, I pray that you would just um, minister to us, Lord, in a mighty way, Father. So be glorified in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, Hebrews chapter 11. This is something that we've been going through in my teachings. Um, and, you know, the, the bottom line is, what is Hebrews 11? Well, it's known as that place in Scripture as God's hall of faith. And there's uh, about 16 individuals listed in this chapter that are heroes of faith, the heroes of faith. And they're recorded right here in this chapter for us. And uh, we've kind of looked at some of the, the stories of these individuals Um, what kind of faith did these uh, men and women have? And as we did a two-part series on Noah, um, you know, we've been calling some of these people like a no-brainer, right? Well, it's no wonder Noah makes uh, Hebrews 11, the hall of faith. I mean, look what he did. Uh, And we we deciphered as we went through that two-part series, what kind of faith did he have? I mean, he built an ark, okay, a, a vessel of salvation for him and his family, uh, years before the judgment was even coming, and the type of judgment, rain, what's that? Didn't even know what it was, but he, in faith, he went ahead and obeyed the Lord, and it, it ultimately ended up in saving his whole family, and that was a key uh, part that we talked about. Then last Thursday night, we talked about Joseph and his faith um, uh, uh, concerning his bones, and you're thinking to yourself, man, he, and, and that's a big, long story on Joseph, but basically to sum it up to say this, he, he, made, he basically made uh, the Israelites vow to him that he knew that God would deliver them from bondage in Egypt one day, and it wouldn't be in his lifetime. He knew he would die before that, and that he vowed, and he said, listen, take my bones with you to the promised land. And we went through, and we got to decipher what that kind of means and how it translates to us Uh, even when we're talking about the rapture and when someday the Lord will come back for us, as we talk about in Thessalonians, and um, that he will come with a shout and the dead in Christ will rise first and then we who are alive will go up and join the Lord in the air and he will take us to our eternal home, the promised land for us uh, in heaven. And so it's been really exciting seeing um, kind of what this whole thing about faith and how it works out in these people's lives that are listed right here in God's Hall of Faith, Hebrews 11. Well, we're going to talk about a, a person today who we get the no-brainers, 
you know, Noah and, and Moses and, and Joseph, and, and we get them, but there's people in the Hall of Faith that you scratch your head and go, why are they there? How are they there? How would God allow them to be a hero of faith? And then you record them for eternity in this chapter that you call, you know, the hall of faith, that God's heroes of faith. How did they make it in there? And we're going to look at uh, a lady today who, that's the question. We'll, we'll pick it up right there in uh, verse 31. But before we do, let's go back. And as we're talking about faith, you know, sometimes there's a question of like, well, gosh, what is it? Well, the definition's right there in verse 1. Hebrews 11, verse 1. Now, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Something about faith, there's that internal conviction that you know uh, that something is good, something is right, but it's not necessarily something that can be seen. You have that conviction, that inner deep con conviction in your heart that you know this is right, this is good. It's the faith or the, of the substance or realization, as we've been saying, of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen, or as we have been saying, not seen yet. And there's a lot of things out there in our life right now that God's working on our life. We know God's working. We know He's moving. And perhaps you're in a situation right now where you sense that. Um, and you have the faith to know that God's in control and that he's going to take care of you, and things will work out, but it hasn't happened yet. Things not seen as of yet. And as we look back at these lives of Noah and Joseph, there were things that they had hope for. There were things that they were coming to realization in, but it just hadn't happened yet. And Noah reached that point where it did, Joseph did not. He died before that. But we know in uh, passages later on that Moses made sure when the, when the people were able to leave Egypt uh, and the slavery was over, guess what? Guess who went with them? The bones of Joseph, right? Because that vow was real. And so that was carried out. Well, we're going to look at a lady here. She's one of two ladies listed in this list of heroes of the faith. Um, right there in verse 31. Let's go ahead and read that together. By faith, the harlot Rahab did not perish with those who did not believe when she had received the spies with peace. Now, right away, your mind kind of goes, wait, what? We've read this chapter many times. I'm sure many of you have and, and have gone through it. But Rahab, the harlot, the prostitute, a prostitute is listed in the Bible. Can we talk about that in church? Yeah, we can. It's one of those passages in the Bible where, and you've probably experienced this as well as I have, where if we were writing the Bible, we might leave a thing out or two, you know? And this might be one of those passages, kind of like Genesis 38. We might kind of leave that out if we were writing the Bible. Okay, read Genesis chapter 38 and then talk to me next time you see me. It might be one of those times where you're like, yeah, you're right, I might leave that out. God doesn't do that. God does not do that. His word is whole. And it's been described, his word is kind of like, like a newspaper. A newspaper where things are uh, basically listed for us, for us to understand and know what happened and what's going on. It wasn't things that were itemized and picked and chosen and to make a, a story sound good. It reports what took place. It reports what happened. Here are the facts. 
And that's what God's word is. It's not kind of picked and chose. So that's a good thing for us because we get the whole story. And it's a good thing, too, because Rahab is linked to Abraham. How is that? Well, first of all, the other lady that I had mentioned that is listed in this chapter is Sarah, as you guys know. Now, Sarah, again, a no-brainer right? She's the mother of the Hebrew people. She was a virtuous woman, and she saved herself for her husband Abraham, and you guys know the story of her. Then to contrast that, you have a prostitute, carnal lady named Rahab, but yet she, just like Sarah, is linked to Abraham. How is that possible? Well, let's join, uh, join me over in Let's go a book back, no, a couple books back, to James, the book of James. Actually, it is only one book back. Two pages for me, maybe a few for you. You guys don't have the anointed Bible like I do, but uh, kidding. James chapter 2, and James is talking about faith as well. However, we're talking about works and faith, and how the two mesh together, how they work together, because faith alone is dead. And that's what he says here. James is talking to us in verse 14 of chapter 2. He says, what does it profit, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can faith save him? Verse 15, if a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you says to them, depart in peace... Be warmed and filled, but you do not give them the things which are needed for the body. What does it profit? Good question. Someone comes to us in need, and they're hungry, and you know it's cold outside, it's raining, and all they have is a t-shirt, and the need is apparent, right? But we say, oh, you know what? God bless you. I hope things work out for you, you know, as you go out there, and uh, we wish the best for you. God bless. But then we don't do anything. We don't put our faith to work and, and actually do something to help fill that need. What James is saying here is the works actually demonstrate our faith. He goes on to say this, chapter 16, and one of you says to them, did I read that? What does it profit? Verse 17, thus also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without your works and I will show you my faith by my works. Verse 19, you believe that there is one God, you do well. Even the demons believe and tremble. There was a thought there that, well, uh, if I believe, then I'm saved. If I believe, there's a God. No, no, that's not enough. He says, no, that's not enough because even the demons believed and they're beyond salvation. It's impossible for them to be saved. They made their choice. They made their stand one day when war broke out in heaven, and they chose the side of Lucifer, who is now Satan. So they even believe, right? Verse 20, but do you want to know, O foolish man, that faith without works is dead? He says it again. Now, check this out. Verse 21, was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered Isaac, his son, on the altar? Do you see that faith was working together with the works and by the works uh, and by works faith was made perfect? And the scripture was fulfilled which says Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. 
and he was called the friend of God. You see then that a man is justified by works and not by faith only. Likewise, look at this, verse 25, was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out another way? Wow, right on the tail end of talking about Abraham and his faith, just like in Hebrews chapter 11, where Abraham is mentioned twice on two separate occasions, so is Rahab the harlot. And just like here in James chapter 2, she's mentioned again as well, linked to Abraham. Never saw him, never met him, separated by a couple hundred years, but still linked nonetheless. Fascinating. Well, why don't we find out what's going on with this story? We've got to go all the way back to Joshua Let's find out a little bit more about what she did and who she was and maybe get some clarity and perhaps some parallels even into our life today. Joshua chapter 2, as you guys know, uh, Moses was not able to go into the promised land due to an incident that he had uh, sort of misrepresented God and that was sort of his um, punishment, if you will. Uh, he said, but you'll be able to see it but Joshua will be the one that takes them into the promised land. Now, here's the thing. Uh, the promised land, flowing with milk and honey. Wonderful area. God promised this land to, to Abraham and his descendants. The only problem was is that there was still some carnal uh, nations that were, and some peoples that were uh, very wicked, very evil, and there was pockets of these people still there, the cleanup operations. Uh, these these nations that had to be eradicated because they for hundreds of years have turned their back on the truth. And so here it came time for them to be dealt with. And so of course, Joshua and the, the people had to deal with these people as they were doing this. Well, we come across a, a place called Jericho and Jericho was one of those places that needed to be dealt with. It was uh, occupied by carnal uh, people had nothing to do with God, they were filled with wickedness, and they needed to be dealt with, and God's judgment was coming in the form of the Israelites. They were on their way, and they had heard about it. And Jericho was uh, believed to be one of those places that was unconquerable. Definitely had one big giant wall, perhaps recent archeological digs show a, a, maybe a second wall, an inner wall, but for sure it shows a giant outer wall, perhaps so big that they could have chariot races across the top of them. Uh, this was a, a city that to the average person would be like, wow, we could never conquer that. But nothing's too big for God as we're gonna see. But before they do this, Joshua sends out two spies. In verse 1, Joshua chapter 2, Joshua the son of Nun sent out two men from Acacia Grove to spy secretly, saying, go view the land, especially Jericho. So they went and came to the house of a harlot named Rahab and lodged there. So as I'm reading this, I'm thinking to myself, why would they go there? Why would they go to the house of a harlot? And how do they even know what that is and, and where to go? How did they come across that? Well, as you look at the word harlot in Hebrew, it actually means innkeeper or female innkeeper. 
So it's kind of fascinating. You're thinking to yourself, that makes a little bit more sense. Okay, so uh, because Jericho was in uh, trading lines, people would travel as they would trade for, between there and other locations. Um, it makes sense that an inn uh, would be available. And perhaps these two guys, it wouldn't raise suspicion if two foreigners, they were spies, uh, but they were just two guys who, hey, I need a place to stay. And so that kind of makes sense. But then you're thinking to yourself, harlot in Hebrew means innkeeper. So, okay. So does that mean Rahab actually had a legitimate occupation? Perhaps our mental picture changes about her, except for the fact that two places, in more than two places actually in the New Testament, mention Rahab, some that we just read, Hebrews 11 and James and also in Matthew chapter 1. And we know the New Testament was originally written in Greek. And the word harlot in Greek means harlot, okay? It means prostitute. So it's clear that perhaps for sure she was a prostitute, but also too could be doing both, could have two occupations. She could be an innkeeper, but she could, you know, one who would get, uh, rent rooms, perhaps, or a place to stay. But also, too, if the event came up and the service was desired, the other occupation could probably be there as well, right? So keep in mind that Rahab, she's part of the problem. Well, what problem? Well, Jericho is about to experience judgment. Judgment's coming, and they knew it. As we get into our text, we'll find that out. They knew judgment was coming. They've heard the stories. They know it's coming. And boy, the, the gates were shut, the walls were up, and they knew, and they were kind of getting dug in, ready for a battle because they knew judgment was coming. But why was judgment coming? Because of the sin and the carnality and the wickedness. And Rahab was part of the problem. That former lifestyle that she had, that, that, that occupation, that service, and that giving herself away for money, that sin, and that, that had to be dealt with. She's part of the issue here, part of the problem. And so as we get in here, we're going to find out kind of what takes place in her life. But it sort of makes sense that that's maybe what drew these guys to go stay here. It could be an inn, uh, wouldn't raise suspicion. She could, they could stay there without being uh, caught. It might be a safe place. But verse two, and it was told the king of Jericho saying, behold, men have come here tonight from the children of Israel to search out the country. Oh, well, we thought it was a, place safe to, uh, a safe place to stay. We thought it would, we'd be okay. We thought we could get in here without being seen. But it kind of makes you think that maybe everyone's senses were kind of up. Maybe they were on high alert because they knew things were coming. They knew judgment was coming. They've heard the stories of these Israelites and how they've conquered these peoples. And so maybe there were spies in the land on their part set up to watch individuals. And it's like, oh, who are these guys? They're going into Rahab's place, but what are they up to? And so news got out. And so, yeah, they're caught. And word gets back to the king. Verse 3, so the king of Jericho sent to Rahab saying, bring out the men who have come to you, who have entered your house, for they have come to search out all the country. See, he knew what was going on. Verse four, then the, women, uh, then the woman took the two men and hid them. So she said, yes, the men came to me, but I didn't know where they were from. And it happened as the gate was being shut, when it was dark, that the men went out. Where the men went, I do not know. But you should pursue them quickly, for you may overtake them. 
So she kind of tells a little whopper here, right? So these guys, they, they show up, and, and she kind of finds out who they are, and, and so do some of the other guys, and word gets to the king very quickly, and he's like, go get them. And so these guys show up, and they say, hey, you've got guys here that are, that are searching out the country. In the meantime, she has hidden these guys. But she, you know, she kind of comes up with a whopper, but it kind of makes sense. She, she, you know, throws a little twist into it to make it actually sound believable. Yeah, there was two guys that showed up here. I mean, on Motel 6 here. People come all the time to our place. There was guys here, sure. But I, I didn't know where they were from. And then as the gates towards the evening, when the gates were being closed for the night for security, they slipped out. In fact, you know what? You guys should take off. Go get them. In fact, you might pursue and, and might catch up to them, right? Verse 6, but she had brought them up to the roof and hidden them with the stalks of flax, which she had laid in order on the roof. Interesting uh, idea of what might be happening here. Why does she have stalks of flax up on her roof? What is a innkeeper slash prostitute? What is she doing with flax? Because you don't just have flax laying around. That was a big commodity. It was a big uh, work that had to uh, do as far as refining flax because flax was actually utilized, the fibers in flax was utilized to make linen and clothing. And that was a big deal. But you didn't just go chop down a few stalks and then pull the fibers out and make linen. That was not going to happen. This was a big work. It was a huge work. And it took time. And so what would a prostitute be doing, doing all this work and having these stalks? You'd have to chop them up, dry them out in the sun, and they would become bleached in the sun as they dried. Then you had to pull the fibers out as they were in the dew of the night and in the early morning. That would help break it down. She'd pull the fibers out and work the fibers to a point where they eventually could make linen. You don't do that overnight. That's, just, that's not just a side business. What am I saying? It seems clear that it's possible that, yes, as she had an occupation as a prostitute, uh, that perhaps she might have had a change of heart. Why? What would change her heart? We'll read on. Let's look. Verse 7. So the men pursued them by the road to the Jordan, to the fords. And this is where John gets real happy because Fords are listed in the Bible. I'm still looking for Chevy where Chevy's listed in the Bible. I have not seen that yet. If you guys know, please show me. Um, but yeah, John's really happy about this verse, Fords. Uh, then the men's pursued them to the road of the Jordan to the Fords. And as soon as those who pursued them had gone out, they shut the gate. Now before they laid down, she came up to them on the roof and said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land, that the terror of you has fallen on us, and that all the inhabitants of the land are faint-hearted because of you. Isn't that cool? She knows. She knows what's coming. And it's not just her that knows, all the inhabitants too, because they're all worried. They're all scared. It's like, the terror of you guys, we've heard about you. And we know that you are here, and just the fact that you two are in my place right now that I'm talking to you, I know it's close. I know it's coming. And so she says this to them. Um, now verse 10. For we have heard 
how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were on the other side of the Jordan, Sihon and Og, whom you utterly destroyed. And as soon as we heard these things, our hearts melted. Neither did there remain any more courage in anyone because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in heaven above and on earth beneath. Wow. Wow. She heard the judgments that had happened to previous nations. She heard of the deliverance of the Red Sea, how the Red Sea was divided and, the, and the, uh, the Israelites were able to cross over on dry land. She heard about Sihon and Og and these kings that were utterly destroyed. And she heard of the terror. And then she says, so I heard all those things. We all heard those things. And guess what? We know that God has given you this land. Because when we heard those things, our hearts melted. It literally drained us. Fear came across us. That's the fear of the Lord, amen? And she realized that. She recognized that. So it makes you think, not only did she hear, but she believed. And then there's a confession of knowing that your God, he is the God of heaven and earth beneath. You know, it's interesting. How do you get faith? Let's go back to the book of Romans. Go back to the book of Romans with me. Romans chapter 10. And again, folks, this is this whole theme of what we've been talking about, faith. And we've been looking at the stories of these people that have this faith, and we're trying to figure out, where, where's my faith? Do I have faith? Do I have enough? What is it that I need to do to increase my faith? And we're looking at these people uh, in Scripture that show us and give us pictures of faith. But look here in Romans chapter 10. Verse 17, so then faith comes by what? Seeing? No, hearing. And hearing by the word of God. Faith comes by hearing. We've heard about you guys. I, I, I have heard the stories. We all did. Well, was she there to see the red part, see, the red part, red sea part, excuse me? Was she there to see that? Was she there to see these kings utterly destroyed? Was she there to see the previous battles and, and all those things? No, she wasn't there to see that. She didn't see, but she heard. And when she heard, she believed. Isn't that cool? Sounds like what a Christian would do. We hear the message. We hear the plan of salvation. And we don't always see things in front of because that's not really how God works. You know, the, the people in Jesus' day, they're like, show us a sign, show us a sign. And he says, no, no, a perverse generation seeks a sign. People want to see things. Well, when I see it, I'll believe it. That's not how God works. He says, believe it, and then you'll see it. He's the opposite of us. His ways are not our ways. His thoughts are above our thoughts. And so it sounds like what, to me, it sounds to me like she got saved. It sounds like to me she's understanding this whole salvation thing. It sounds like to me that she heard, believed, and then she started making changes in her life, realizing perhaps, you know, I might be part of the problem here. What I've done, my life, my, my involvement in this whole thing, I, she's taken ownership in this. 
And it could be that we don't know for sure, but it's something to, to ponder and think based on this um, fear of the Lord, because she said, you know, we, we all, our hearts melted. That's the fear of the Lord, right? Get right or get left kind of thing. It's the fear of the Lord fell upon them. Their hearts melted. They, they, she heard the stories and she knew things were pending. Things were coming down the pike. Now here these two guys are right before her face and she's realizing, realization, remember, the substance or the realization of things to come. They haven't happened yet, but she senses they will and she knows that they will. It seems to me like there might have been a change of heart and a change of perhaps lifestyle, realizing that perhaps now maybe I should get a legitimate job. One that's not wicked, one that just is needed, you know? And so it seems like, you know, she's got all this flax doing a hard labor job now, working to actually produce something, you know, linen, something that we can all use, that was widely used in the Old Testament as clothing. It's fascinating to think about those things. So faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of God. Well, back to our story, back to Joshua. So she, she talks about how she heard of these things. She talks about how the fear of the Lord fell upon her. I know that God has given you this place. He has delivered this land into your heart. I know that, she says. And that your God is the God of heaven and the God of earth beneath. She has done it all. She is, she is realizing where her salvation is coming from. And she goes on to say there, verse 12, now, pick this up, watch this. Now, therefore, I beg you, swear to me by the Lord, since I have shown you kindness, that you also will show kindness to my father's house and give me a true token and spare my father, my mother, my brothers, my sisters, and all that they have and deliver our lives from death. You know what's cool? She doesn't just ask for salvation for herself. Would you please save my whole family? Save my whole family. Say, spare my father my mother, my brothers and sisters, and all that they have. Will you please do that? And, and don't deliver us unto death. She asked for salvation for her whole family. And what have we been talking about through these whole things? Noah, same thing. His household was saved because of his faith. And now Joseph, Thursday night, we talked about him and, and all of the things that were happening. You know, he was given A, then he was given B. He didn't give him all the steps at once. He, he went through these trials and these tribulations of betrayal and, and loneliness and, and, and being in desolate places. But eventually, God worked it out to where he would save millions through the famine, including who? His family. And now here Rahab is. Save my family. Save my father, my mother, my brother and sister. She didn't just ask for salvation for herself, but her whole family. What is this telling us, everyone? God is into saving households. Not just individuals. He wants your whole family to be saved. He would that all come to the saving grace knowledge of him. And so he wants to save your whole household. Do you have family that don't know anything about the Lord? Do you have family that just, yeah, they hear you, ah, rapture. <laughs> I 
I'll believe that when I see it. Okay. Ah, you know, it's good for you. You go to church, and I, I, I dig that about you. That's cool. I wish I could, but, you know, no. Do you have family like that? I, I have family members like that. That It's just, you know, it's just on the back burner. You know, it's, it's not, interest, it's not a, a big part of their life as far as, you know, they know where we've been raised and in the Lord and all those things, but it's just not a priority. A lot of my family in Colorado, I, I just, my heart breaks. But you know what? The Lord wants to save all of my family because we see this over and over and over again in Scripture. He's into saving households, not just individuals, and that's beautiful. She says that. Please save my father, my mother, my brothers, sisters, and all that they have, and please do not uh, deliver them unto death. So verse 14, so the men answered her, our lives for yours, if none of you tell this business of ours, and it shall be when the Lord has given us the land that we will deal kindly and truly with you. Verse 15, then she let them down by a rope through the window, for her house was on the city wall. She dwelt on the wall. That's important. Make that little side note. Tuck that away because we'll revisit that in a moment. She lived on the wall. Verse 16, and she said to them, get to the mountain, lest the pursuers meet you. Hide there for three days and until the pursuers, uh, until the pursuers return. Afterward, you may go your way. So location. Um, the camp, Joshua's camp, the Israelites, they were camped on the east side of the Jordan. You'd have to cross the Jordan and start heading west to get to Jericho. But these mountains that she's talking about are actually on the west side of Jericho. So she's actually very smart here. See, the pursuers, they went out and they started heading towards the river. They went east. She sends them down the wall and says, go west, go to the mountain. Go to the mountain and to these areas that were filled with caves and rocks and perfect places to hide. Hey, go that way, hang out for three days, and when those pursuers have come back, then you're free to go. Very cool. Verse 17, so the men said to her, we will be blameless of this oath of yours, which you have made us swear, unless when we come into the land, you bind this line of scarlet cord in the window through which you let us down. And unless you bring your father, your mother, your brothers, and all your fa father's household to your own home, so it shall be that whoever goes outside the doors of your house into the street, his blood shall be on his own head, and we will be guiltless. And whoever is with you in the house, his blood shall be on our head if a hand is laid on him. And if you tell this business of ours, then we will be free from your oath, which you made us swear. And then she said, according to your words, so be it. And she sent them away, and they departed, and she bound the scarlet cord in the window. That was the signal. That was the, uh, the thing that would hold her side of the, her house, her dwelling place, apart from everyone else, this scarlet cord, which is interesting. Because, it's interesting because 
The Israelites at this time were just about getting ready to celebrate Passover. We see that in chapter 5. Passover, that time in Egypt, you guys remember when the plagues were hitting, but that final blow, that final thing that just hit Pharaoh right into the heart, the firstborn of everyone would die unless blood were to be put on the doorposts, the above part and both sides of the door of the dwelling place. And everyone was to be inside the house, okay? So that when the death angel came down, the death angel would see the blood on the doorpost and would pass over that house, rendering everyone inside the home safe. They would have salvation as long as they stayed inside the home and there was blood on the doorpost. They were about ready to celebrate that because they were to celebrate and commemorate that every year. And the young kids were supposed to be, what are we doing this for? Why are we celebrating this? Well, here's why. When we were in Egypt, God provided a way for us to be saved from the plague. And so they would celebrate that every year to educate their people. Well, they were about ready to celebrate Passover at this time. And it's kind of cool because this scarlet cord that would be hanging from the window is kind of a picture of the Passover. Again, they said, get your mom, your dad, your brothers and sisters, and everyone who you care about into this house. And as long as they're inside the house, they won't be harmed. We won't harm them. So get them in here. But if he goes out into the streets, his blood's on his own hands. But we will see the scarlet cord. We will see that, and we will not destroy you inside. Do you guys see the picture there? The parallel is wonderful. It's beautiful. And the timing's perfect because, like I said, they're about ready to celebrate Passover themselves. Okay, I think we're going up to, did we leave off at verse 22? And they departed and went to the mountain and stayed there three days until the pursuers returned. The pursuers sought them all along the way, but did not find them. These are good spies. Verse 23, so the two men returned, descended from the mountain, and crossed over, and they came to Joshua, the son of Nun, and told him all that had befallen them. And they said to Joshua, truly the Lord has delivered all the land into our hands, for indeed all of the inhabitants of the country are faint-hearted because of us. They went, he went back, they both did, went back to Joshua and they said, oh yeah, oh yeah, it's ours. <laughs> truly the Lord has delivered this, and now we know it because, man, everyone's terrified. They've heard our story. They've heard of all of the successes that the Lord has allowed us to have, all of our victories, crossing the Red Sea, the battles, these kings that we've just utterly destroyed. They've heard it, and they're terrified. They're faint-hearted. Actually using Rahab's actual words to describe to Joshua what's going on, right? So we're going to jump ahead just a little bit. In between these chapters, we'll jump ahead to chapter 6, but in between there is the story of uh, them crossing uh, the, uh, the river and beginning to head towards Jericho. And you guys remember the story of the, you know, they'd have to uh, circle around Jericho uh, once a day for six days. And then finally on the seventh day, uh, they would circle around the city for seven days. And then the trumpets would blow and the war cry would be, be cried out and the yelling and the shouting. And then, of course, you know what happens, and that's where we pick it up. Chapter 6, as we jump ahead, verse 15. 
But it came to pass on the seventh day that they rose early about the dawning of the day and marched around the city seven times in the same manner. On that day only, they marched around the city seven times. And the seventh time it happened when the priests blew the trumpets that Joshua said to the people, shout for the Lord has given you the city. This is a war cry, guys. This is a, ah, oh, just imagine just the amount of decibels that, that could have happened here. And there's a lot of theories out there, the people, the naysayers, like, well, Basically, what happened was, you know, as millions of people are circling for seven days and then finally for seven times on the seventh day, uh, the, the ground around the foundations of the wall perhaps weakened uh, by all of this uh, trap. Okay. Um, takes a lot of faith to believe all that. What I believe is this, that God said, hey, do this and show your obedience. And as you do that, I'm going to do a miraculous work just like I did with the Red Sea. Hey guys, explain that one. Was, you know, something geological happened there too? No, it was an amazing work of God, a miracle right before their eyes to deliver his people. So that's exactly what happens. So now verse 17, now the city shall be doomed by the Lord to destruction, it and all who are in it. <clears throat> Excuse me, only Rahab the harlot shall live. She and all who are with her in the house, because she hid the messengers that were sent. These guys didn't forget the vow. They didn't forget. The instructions are given. Everything gets destroyed. Everything except Rahab the harlot and all that is with her. Verse 18, And you, by all means, abstain from the accursed things, lest you become accursed when you take of the accursed things and make the camp of Israel accursed and trouble it. But all the silver and gold and vessels of bronze and iron are consecrated to the Lord. They shall come into the treasury of the Lord. So the people shouted when the priests blew the trumpets and it happened when the people heard the sound of the trumpet that the people shouted with a great shout that the wall fell down flat. Then the people went up into the city, every man straight before him, and they took the city, and they utterly destroyed all that was in the city, both man and woman, young and old, ox, sheep, donkeys, with the edge of the sword. Wow, brutal. But that's what it takes to deal with sin. Sin is ugly. We don't think so, or we don't really have that sense necessarily, but sin is ugly. Just look at what the priests used to have to do, what the people used to have to do to come to the temple and sacrifice their lambs or uh, the best of their flocks or whatever, and that sacrifice had to be made, and they had to stand there and watch that, that animal be slaughtered and the, the blood spilled out and it become a burnt offering. That's brutal. And what it told them was, that's your sin. That is what your sin does. Something innocent has to die because of your sin. And the thing about it is back then, uh, that would just cover their sin. It didn't wash away their sin, it just covered it. And that's why this was a reoccurring thing all the time. They had to keep going back and keep going back. And we'd used, they had to used to stand there and watch little Fluffy, the sheep, be slaughtered and sacrificed. And the kids were part of this too. We, they all saw that and how horrifying. But that's sin. 
from God's perspective, that's how ugly sin is. And these, these people in Jericho, the gates were closed off, indicating we're not interested in what you have to say. We're not interested in your truth. We know about it. We know about the truth. We know judgment's coming. We, we've heard the stories, but we don't want it. So our gates are closed to you. And they lived in their sin and their carnality. But one woman goes, uh-uh, <laughs> nope, not me, not this one. And it was almost like, thank you, Lord, for sending those two guys because you saved me, Lord, by providing those guys to come here at this time. God's timing's perfect, right? These guys were here at the perfect time. I was able to beg them and say, listen, I've shown you kindness. Please save my family and me. What do I have to do? Because I've heard about you, and I believe that, that God has given you this place and this land. And God is the God of heaven and earth. Your God is God of heaven and earth. I believe and they saw that, and they go, you know what? You're going to be okay. You are going to be okay. We won't hurt you as long as you have the scarlet cord and have all your family inside this house of salvation. Okay? You'll be fine. And when the walls went falling flat, remember we talked about earlier how she lived on the wall? It doesn't seem like a safe place to live if the walls are going to be coming crashing down flat, right? Obviously... It's indicated, it's, it's obvious that her house stood. Probably the only part of the wall that le was left remaining. It wouldn't make sense that her house got demolished in, in the whole thing, right? So the scarlet cord, was it completely necessary? Because if the whole wall fell flat and the only portion left standing, obviously that's where Rahab and her family would be, right? The scarlet cord was an outward symbol of inward change. That's what that was. Did she need the scarlet cord for her salvation? Was that 100% necessary? You'll only be saved because of this. No, God in his mercy provided her home to stay still. And that scarlet cord was an indication of an inward change. Guess what? Just like baptism is for you and I today. Do you have to be baptized to be saved and go to heaven? No, you do not. Ask the thief on the cross. Right? He didn't jump down real fast, go get baptized, and then get back up there. Oh, okay, good. Whew. No. It's an, but what we do, what we believe in baptism, is because we're showing the world. It's an outward profession. World, check it out. I have seen, I have heard, excuse me, I have heard the good news. I have heard salvation, and I believe God says what he means, and he means what he says. And I believe I'm a sinner. I'm part of the problem. And I know I need salvation, and I know that, God, you are the God of heaven and earth. And you, I'm giving you my heart. I'm giving you my soul, and that is salvation. If you believe in your heart, you're saved. Confess with your mouth. Amen? But when we go get baptized... I'm telling the world that. That's what this is. It's an outward profession to the world of an inward change in my heart. I've come to grips with the fact that I'm part of the problem. I've come to grips with the fact that I'm a sinner. I've come to grips with the fact that I've tried everything out there, all the gimmicks and everything, and I still feel empty inside. That Jesus-shaped Jesus hole in my heart can't be filled until I put Jesus there. And I've done that, and now I want to show the world, and we do that through baptism. 
And that's what's going on here. Her, her part of the wall is still standing up. It was the safest place to be. It would seem that it would be the most dangerous, but it turns out it's the safest place. Okay, going along there, Joshua gives instructions. He says, look, everything's getting burned. Everything's getting destroyed. Um, the silver and gold, the vessels of bronze and iron, that we will keep. That will get consecrated to the Lord, and it will go into his treasury. And they utterly destroyed, verse 21, all that was in the city, both man and woman. We read that, verse 22. But Joshua had said to the two men who had spied out the country, go into the harlot's house, and from there bring out the woman and all that she has as you swore to her. Hey, go get her, get her family and all that they have, and bring her out, bring them all out here. Verse 23, and the young men who had been spies went in and brought out Rahab, her father, her mother, her brothers, and all that she had. So they brought out all her relatives and left them outside the camp of Israel. But what did they do? They burned the city and all that was in it with fire. Only the silver and gold and the vessels of bronze and iron they put into the treasury of the house of the Lord. And Joshua spared Rahab, the harlot, her father's household, and all that she had. So she dwells in Israel to this day because she hid the messengers whom Joshua sent to spy out Jericho. Wow. Talk about faith. Her act was absolute treason, hiding these guys, knowing who they were. These guys show up and, oh, yeah. And then within minutes, it seems that the king's men were knocking on her door. Hey, two guys showed up here. Where are they at? Because they're here to spy out the land. And she sticks her neck out and makes up this little fib and this lie and says, I, yeah, I mean, they were here, but I don't know where they were from. You know, they, they went out in the evening and the, the gates were getting ready to close, so they, they shot out. Hey, I would go get them. If you hurry now, you might be able to go catch up to them and catch them. Right? Treason. Had they come in, and had they searched the roof and all the locations in her home and in her area, they would have found them. But the Lord works in mysterious ways, and he, did, he didn't allow that. They were able to go. She really stuck her neck out for these two guys. That's faith. Why? Because she realized what was coming. It was the realization, the substance of what was before her, of things not seen yet. It's coming, and she knew it. And by these two guys showing up, hearing the stories of what took place, knowing what was coming, and now these two guys show up, oh, she's like, yeah, this is a done deal. Hey, I need help. <laughs> Save me and my family, please, because I know God's given you this land. I know he's given this to you, and there's going to come, destruction's coming. We don't want to be part of that. We're on God's side. I choose God's side, she says. Our family chooses God's side. And because they were given kindness, they give that kindness back to her and her family. Brought outside of the city, and the whole place is torched. Even to the point where Joshua puts a curse on it and says, any man who rebuilds this place will be a curse, and he'll set the foundations on his firstborn and his youngest son. And that exactly does happen in the book of Kings. In the ninth century, a guy named Hael tries to rebuild the city, and he does... But guess what? He loses his firstborn and his youngest, just like the prophecy said. 
God means what he says, and he says what he means. Amen? Everything in the city gets torched and burned except what? The gold, the silver, the iron, all of the things that can't be destroyed by fire. That gets taken and put into the treasury of the Lord. Now, why is that a big deal? Why is that a big deal? Because sometimes people get hung up about the fact that, well, yeah, but Rahab lied. She told a whopper. And, and can't God work in ways that, that didn't require that? And even though she's mentioned in the hall of faith, God's hall of faith, but she was a liar? And it would indicate that this took place after her change of heart, remember? So what's the deal? You know what the deal is, is this. In 2 uh, Corinthians chapter 5, we don't have to turn there now, but we're told that we will stand before the judgment seat of Christ, not for our sin, but for rewards. And also, too, in, in 1 Corinthians, we go back, in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, we're told this, is that um, our, our deeds just like is this big pile of stuff, and everything gets burned by fire. And everything that we've done with ill motives or things that were just, you know, we tried to do this to get seen by man or whatever the case may be, all of that gets burned up. And you know what's left? The gold, the silver, that's what's left. Not destroyed by fire. Revelation chapter 1 describes Jesus as the one whose eyes are like a burning fire. And it's as though he looks at you and he looks at me and all the stuff and all the garbage and all the, the stuff with ill will and, and, and you know, ill motives or whatever. We tried to do something good, but in our heart we had something like a different motive. Whatever the case may be, that gets burned up and his eyes just... And it dissipates and burns and disappears and goes away. You know what's left? Are those things where truly, Lord, I want your kingdom furthered. I want to be a witness, just like these two spies, they were actually witnesses because they went in and they witnessed what was going on. They came back and witnessed to Joshua what was actually happening in there. You're a witness where you're at. You're a witness in your job. You're a witness at school, at college, wherever, retired, walking the beach. You're a witness there. I'm not what my occupation is. That's just what puts food on the table in this life we're living. What I really am is a witness to those who aren't saved around me. I don't want to be part of the problem. I want to be part of the solution. The solution is being a, a pure witness for the Lord, doing the best I can. Do I mess up? Sure. Do I do things perhaps with a motive that wasn't correct? Yeah, but guess what? <laughs> Burned up. Gone. God has this ability to be able to kind of go into your life and move around all of the vile and all of the ugly and burn that up and I'm gonna, he says, I'm gonna have what's left is gold, silver, the precious. That is what's left. That's the Lord. And sometimes we don't understand that because the enemy's on our shoulder going, <laughs> you're not getting rewarded for that. You call yourself a Christian and you just did that or you just said that. Or here's one for you. He'll use your past life, things in your past that perhaps could haunt you if you dwelled on them, but he'll bring that up and he'll, he'll, he'll harbor on that. And you're just like, oh, I can't be used. 
I belong on that shelf. I'll just sit around and wait for the rapture. That's a lie. That's a lie of the enemy. And don't you fall for it. Folks, don't fall for that lie. Jesus loves you. And God sees you through his son Jesus, and you're crystal clear. You're white as snow. He doesn't see your sin. We're not, as believers, in front of the judgment seat to get dealt with our sin. That's already dealt with on the cross. We celebrated that this morning. He said, it is finished. It's over. There's nothing more you can do to provide something for your salvation. It's already done. And that's what the, the audience that was reading Hebrews was being told. And that's what we're telling you today. God would say that to you today. There's nothing else you can do except live out your faith, right? We walk by faith, not by sight, hearing the word of God and sharing the gospel and being a witness everywhere you go. Where's your mission field? Right between your feet. That's what I've always been told, and I believe that. My mission is where I'm at work because those are the people I minister to. How about you? How about you with school, you young people? The junior high, high schools, uh, kids that I get to teach, man, they're front row taking notes, and man, and, they, and that just warms my heart. I rejoice. A new generation is being brought up, and I know they're at school witnessing. The Lord loves you. God loves you. You mean so much to him. And may the Lord strengthen our faith today. Hopefully we leave here people that know that, you know what, something good is coming. Something good is coming. Are you in the middle of a trial or a problem or a tribulation? If you're not, you will be. <laughs> I'm just going to let you know that right now. Jesus said that. And if you are, something good is coming. It hasn't happened yet, but it is coming. God is good. He loves you.